Twitter. I'm Isaac Fitzgerald, she's Chantal Rochelle, and you are watching AM to DM. Happy Friday! Happy Friday, Isaac, we made it. We made it. We lived to tell the tale. We lived to tell the tale. Sure did. That I mean, you're here in the flesh. Mm, I'm here in the flesh. I'm here in the, here in the flesh. Y'all are in, there are in the here. flesh. Y'all watching us in the flesh. <laughs> We're live. We're live. We're live. We're live. And it's 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 a right phrase to use yeah, right now because for sure. let me tell you, there's more bomb news, which is great. This morning, BuzzFeed News tweeted an 11th suspicious package addressed to Senator Cor Cory Booker was intercepted in Florida. Ooh, meanwhile, another suspicious package was discovered. This one addressed to James Clapper, the former director of national intelligence. And I have a feeling that given that this is now day three, it's day three of this ongoing story, that more of these packages will be found in the future. I mean, it's, it's kind of just safe to assume much. right now. Yeah. Uh, the fact that we're in double digits is is wild to me. So this is gonna be an ongoing story, guys, and we're gonna keep talking about it. But Chantal, I wanted to ask you, what's a news story? That's the news story that was the focus of yes. this week. What's a news story that got you through this week? What got me through this week is seeing Megyn Kelly getting what's been long time coming for her ass, okay? <laughs> I'm, listen, that's what got me, pushed me through, woke me up this morning. Got you I out of bed. Like, got me, I put my two feet on the ground. <laughs> Megan got what was coming for her. Okay? Is, and is that, that is, it's, you feel like it's a long time yeah, coming? Yeah, the fact that she even has a show on, on, on NBC, uh, was it NBC, I'm just like, Fox News, is no one watching her trajectory and how terrible she's been with her comments? Mm -hmm. So even though I'm not here for her getting a reportedly large sum, like, yeah. that's not okay. Yeah, yeah, but but overall, you're happy to know that she's yes, maybe not. Yes, that I will not be seeing a third sm hour of her. Smoothing, yes. smoothing right yes. back into that position. Well, listen, here's a tweet from Jamel Hill. Understand that I'm not mad at Megyn Kelly. Get it how you live. I'm upset about a TV game that consistently undervalues and undermines black talent. Too many times we aren't the answer until shit goes left. And that, I mean, truth. True, true, true story. And right? taking the unbothered route <laughs> is my fellow Texan queen and former co-host of today's take on NBC, Tamron Hall. Yesterday she tweeted, Smiling ear to ear tonight with Al Roker. Bravo, Mr. Roker, for an incredible performance in Waitress Musical. The entire cast lit up the stage. A magical Broadway NYC night. I'm blessed to know this icon. <laughs> Is that, you think that's the voice? I imagine Tamron after she just whipped around her, her, her scarf yeah, and yeah. she jumped in the car. And said, oh, I must tell my fans how magical this evening was. What else happened today? I, like, how great was the musical that she just had to push? Like, like, I love it. It's I, so classy. I will say that that is the tone in that's which I tone. read it in exactly. my head that's as well. Literally. She seemed very kind of wrapped yes. in a quilt of yes, exactly. smugness. Exactly. Just this like cashmere, just toasty. I, I also I just yeah. love the opening line. Exactly. Like smiling ear to ear with Al Roker. Roker. You know what you think that yeah. tweet's about. And then yes. she's like, no, just Broadway. Yeah, just Broadway. I'm just talking about Broadway. The musical Broadway. was that great. Yeah. Loved it. I, yes. it, was a, it was, I would argue, a very perfect, a fire very, tweet. Very much so. A yes, fire tweet, if you sure. will. And listen, Twitter, we want to hear from you. Have you ever had to choose between delivering a classy read or taking the unbothered route? Let us know using the hashtag AM to DM. What's your go-to? Do you like to, to go in, do the classy read, or do you take the unbothered so route? So I take the unbothered route most times because I just really don't have the energy and oftentimes don't care. Mm -hmm. But for this one, I, for Megan Kelly, I would have had to be like, oh my gosh, this prayer was so magical. Excuse me, as I go to my job after this <laughs> and I'm a, as an employed woman. <laughs> like, I would really lean into it. You, you, all right, so you would have got, so we, we admire Tamron Hall. Yes, We applaud, act. we applaud you, your restraint. Yes. Well done. I also, me. Yeah. I, I, I like take the unbothered route myself yeah. most times, but I find in 2018, 
There's maybe not room to, for, for being it's, unbothered, it's especially hard. when you've got Megyn Kelly walking away Ex with the rest of that exactly. contract. Exactly, all that money. And speaking of seemingly undeserved cash payments, mm. Maya Kossoff, you tweeted, Google could have fired Andy Rubin with cause, but instead they gave him a fond farewell and a 90 million exit package. That's right, according to a new story from the New York Times, Google paid Rubin a huge sum of money and gave him a loving send off when he left the company while managing to not mention a sexual misconduct claim that had been leveled against him. Mm. Buzzfeed News tech reporter Ryan Mack joins us now. Good morning, Ryan. How's it going? So who is Andy Rubin? So Andy Rubin is the father of Android, which is, I don't, everyone has an iPhone, I guess, these days here, but um, Android is the most popular operating system around the world. You have a, anything but an iPhone, you're probably using Android. He's the creator of that operating system. He's the creator of that op operating system. How long had he been with Google? He'd been there since Google acquired his company in 2005, and he departed around uh, late 2014. Okay, and, and there was a slew of kind of inappropriate behavior that was reported by the Times. What stood out to you? Oh, man, it's super bad. Um, uh, some of the accusations in there are of coercion. Uh, he had multiple relationships with um, employees. One of the accusations that he coerced someone to perform oral sex on him in a hotel room. Um, we're talking pretty awful stuff. Wow, and it wasn't a nice send-off, why apparently by Google. How did they send him off? How did they, you know, sell the deal there? So as an executive, he kind of um, was coming up on some kind of anniversary, as it was reported, and he got this $150 million um, pay package, um, I guess, as top Google's execs get paid a lot. Um, and during the course of this, um, an investigation happened. He was then, uh, they negotiated down to $90 million in an exit package for him. Um, and he kind of was sent out the door. Um, he got a glowing goodbye email from the CEO of the company and it was kind of swept under the rug. And so no one's kind of known about this until now. No one's known about it until now. You uh, posted a email that the Google CEO sent out to staff yesterday. What, what was in that email? I think that was actually even more eye-opening eye in some ways. Um, Google responded by saying they actually didn't uh, talk about Ruben's specific allegations, but they said that 48 people in the last two years had been dismissed for sexual harassment, 13 of which were, were managers. And that's a shocking number, I guess, in, in Silicon Valley where people think it's progressive and forward thinking. These companies have some of the biggest issues here. Oh, oh. oh looks like we, did we just lose Ryan Mack? Looks like we, up, oh, and we got next guest coming up. But hang on, stand by just a moment. We're gonna get Ryan Mack back because we do want to ask him one last question. Yes, for sure. Hey, buddy, right, we welcome back. back. Welcome back. He couldn't escape us. <laughs> All right. So, what did Andy Rubin? What kind of discrepancies did he see, or was his response in New York Times report? So he just tweeted this morning um, saying that uh, it's part of a smear campaign. He's going through a divorce right now, and um, he's shocked that anonymous Google folks would comment on his personnel file. He claimed he never coerced anyone either. Um, so I guess it's it's gonna be a long kind of haul in, in, in getting to the bottom of this, I guess. Getting to the bottom of it indeed. Well, thank you so much for joining us this morning, Ryan. All right, and we're gonna do one last tweet here from Ryan Mack before we move along. If you're a Google employee and have an update about the policy around relationships within the company, especially among managers and execs, my DMs 
are open. And I think that goes beyond just Google, all right? Anybody yeah, in the tech industry, Ryan Mack is an incredible reporter. Yeah. Reach out to him if you've got a yeah, story. story. Absolutely. Well, here's an evergreen, evergreen tweet from Parker Malloy. Stop rewarding people for being willfully ignorant asses. Oh, That's a, just where's the live by. I want a shirt. <laughs> oh, but in this case, we're pretty sure Parker was speaking about Caitlyn Jenner, who announced Thursday that she's no longer supporting President Trump. But just so we're sure, Parker joins us now. Good morning, Parker. Good morning. So you <laughs> were talking about Caitlyn, right? <laughs> Yeah. <laughs> yes. Yes, I was. <laughs> All right. And why Why do you feel that Caitlyn Jenner's op-ed was just a, too little too late? Well, I mean, first off, this is the third or fourth time that I think she's she's distanced herself from Trump. But each, like the previous times where it was the trans military ban, she was like, call me Donald. We need to talk about this or something like that. Really, I think she just wants his attention. I feel like if Trump would have called her whatever, not changed a thing. She would still be, you know, running around saying Trump's the, Trump's the dude. But, you know, this, this was just, <clears throat> sorry. Um, you know, the, the whole, the whole thing, her whole, her whole op-ed didn't really say much. It just said I was wrong. And it's like, we all tried to warn you. And maybe right now what the world needs to hear is not the story of someone saying, Hey, I was wrong, but you know, stories of people who, who know what's going on, who really know what's going on to kind of, uh, push back. Because if you look at the, you know, the amount of coverage this story got, you know, a, po a possibility that the government's going to begin a rulemaking process that could kind of wipe out the legal protections of an entire group, it spiked on Sunday and then just tapered off. So it was very short. You know, there's a lot going on in the world. There are bombs being sent all over the place. Mm -hmm. So, you know, you've really got to hit the news cycle hard if you want to make any sort of impact. But, you know, rather than, rather than putting out a story or putting out op-eds by, uh, you know, people who work for organizations like the National Center for Transgender Equality or the ACLU or any of these groups that are actually fighting this or warning about this or trying to tell people about the repercussions. You know, it's the Washington Post ran a story about a conservative trans woman on, on Monday and then Jenner's on Thursday. And neither one said they were leaving the Republican Party, um, which, you know, I mean, like that, that seems odd, you know? So, I mean, I think that that sort of, speaks to one of the big problems with with the way um you know with the way media covers lgbt issues just generally you know if you look back at the election you know look at the links journalists went to to paint trump as pro lgbt when every pro lgbt thing he said was mostly just covered for his anti-muslim views you know and um my my colleague at media matters uh, matt gertz had a whole thread about this the other day that was that was great and you know it's like we need to hear we need to hear some honest voices and not stunts and you know doing something about um you know the whether it's the thousandth uh you know i voted for trump and then something went wrong and now i'm not sure about trump uh you know profile or whether it's caitlin jenner writing an op-ed where she says i don't support trump anymore she's she already said a couple months ago that she wasn't going to vote for him again. So I don't, I don't, I really don't understand why this is even news and why she's being rewarded with, you know, uh, 
space in one of, you know, the, the few uh, legacy media outlets that, you know, can still sway public opinion a little bit these days. Absolutely. And you said she's been rewarded. What do you say to folks who are praising Jenner for speaking up about this and finally calling her stance and how she feels about Trump? Well, you know, I mean, I, I think it's better late than never. Like, I would rather people come around on, on an issue. Um, and that's that's good, whether it's Caitlyn Jenner or, you know, on, on other issues or another example that I used in the thread was um, Max Boot, who's a, a conservative who, um, you know, over the past several years has kind of kind of realized that maybe the party doesn't represent his views. Um, and he's been getting a lot of praise over in 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 his world for, you know, calling calling out his own party and understanding that racism exists and stuff like that. But, you know, that's great. That's great. And more people should should kind of shift over and should be encouraged to like positive reinforcement is good, but you don't have to, you know, celebrate them at the expense of covering things in an important, nuanced way. This story is happening. This story is, you know, every trans person I talk to right now is terrified. Um, and, And we're hearing the story of someone who's who's just going well, I, I was misled. We all told you, Caitlin. All of us. We all <laughs> told, told you. you yes. Parker, before we let you go real quick, who are some of the people uh, whose voices you would like to see? New York Times, take note. Who should be writing op-eds? Sure, sure. Um, well, New York, New York Times published one op-ed by Jen, Jenny Boylan, who is, she's great. Um, but, you know, I, 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 I feel like honestly, it's like not my voice. (laughs) Um, We need to hear from, you know, people like uh, Janet Mock or Laverne Cox. You know, I I think that they, you know, both of them, you know, Laverne Cox has been, uh, I think the other day she was in uh, Massachusetts helping to kind of try to bring attention to the fact that on election day, the state of Massachusetts will, will vote on whether the state will keep its law to, um, to, to protect trans people or not. That's something that, you know, uh, hasn't gotten a lot of attention, but it's really kind of, you know, it's, it's, it's important. So it's great that Laverne's been out there doing that. And uh, so, yeah. Absolutely. It's very important indeed. Well, thank you so much for joining us this morning, Parker. Yeah. Thanks for having me again. Really appreciate it. All right, listen, we've got a lot of show today, so we're just going to get right into Jump it. Right into with it. With some fire you ready? Let's do it. Let's do this. Fire! All right. Let's go. (laughs) Lori, you tweeted, how about most of us go high, but we bail out the ones who go low? (laughs) That one took me a minute. Yeah, it took me a second. It took me a second, but yeah, yeah, let's get some bail money together. We're just going to have their back. Yeah, handle business. Have have their back. (laughs) Nate Mayer on Elm Street. I see what you did there. (laughs) American detective. I solved the case by breaking all the rules. British detective. I solved the case by noticing a specific umbrella. I just imagine a very long umbrella too. Like super long, like your arms went. Do you have like a favorite American British detective? I do not, cause no, that's, (laughs) I sure do not have a favorite. You're like, Isaac, I don't like horror. Yeah. I'm staying away from mysteries. British, uh, I don't know any detective British movies. Stay in in the lane? Yeah, staying in the lane. All right. All right, Abby. You tweeted, <laughs> you ever process your emotions in a healthy way just to flex on your dad? <laughs> Yikes. <laughs> Close to home. 
two, 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 quotes. two different yeah. reactions here. I felt that one. Uh, I felt it deep. Yeah. 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 <laughs> Depending on whatever your relationship is with your daddy, it can go either way. So, I try. Yeah. I'm sorry. <laughs> Jujubuki, you tweeted, I didn't delete a tweet. You failed to screenshot a collector's item. Mm, real yes. stuff right there. You missed it. Put it Sorry. on a shirt. Yep. Get those. Frame Do you delete tweets? You delete tweets, right? I know. I'm a, I'm a less, no. Because yeah. I don't say stupid stuff. Like, just. <laughs> Sean's like, 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 I stay in my lane. I stay in my, I'm my, my, my business. <laughs> Do my thing. I do the unbothered yeah, route. but I don't tell you. I looked back on 2009. I was like, okay, we're good. <laughs> <laughs> All right, y'all. Up next, Lauren, 2008, must love dogs. 2018, must be willing to die for dogs. It's true. You got to Things have escalated. Yeah, they have escalated quickly. I don't know if I'm going to put my life on the line for dogs, but I will say I will be there with them in the line of fire. I will hold them down. You'll get the, I'll hold them. You'll get yeah, the bail money the for ones, the folks. Especially, like, oh my gosh, please, let's take you to safety. Oh my yeah. gosh. I love it. Right, you want to do this tweet of the yeah, day? Yeah, ready for it? Let's do it. It comes from Cardi B. My niece told everybody in her school that I'm her aunt and they think she's lying now. I have to go pick her up. Oh, Cardi B picking you up from school? I'm just saying, that's a great aunt. That's a great I know aunt. she's saying it's yes. a pain in the ass, but that's a great aunt. Yes, yeah, so and she's got to play a banger, one of her songs, and just like balance on the light. <laughs> and you have to hear her coming. Like, I want to hear Cardi coming. In a bend, yes, in playing a bend. her own music. Yes. See, I like the idea of she takes public transport. She's oh, just no. like, she's in sweats. Not at all. She's like, come on, okay, yes, yes, I'm Cardi B. Yes, I am. And oh. just like gets her out of there. You, you got to flex. Well, <laughs> Too much going on. Well, all right, y'all. Later in the show, I sit six down with Ricky Lake. <laughs> but up next, we go live from the district with Kate Nacera. Ricky, Ricky, Ricky. <laughs> <laughs> Welcome back. We're going live from the district with BuzzFeed News DC Bureau Chief Kate Nacera. Good morning, Kate. Good morning, guys. How are you? Doing well. Doing good. How are you? I like that leather jacket. Yeah. How are you doing? Thanks, I'm just doing my basic fall look for you, Isaac. <laughs> I appreciate it. All right, let's start with this tweet from the New York Times. President Trump is considering executive action to bar migrants entering the U.S. from Mexico, part of a pre-election push to play to his base. Kate, that is wild, and I wanted to start here. Does the president actually have the authority to do this? Yeah, he does. I, I mean, the, the Supreme Court ruled recently on the travel ban saying that he does have uh, the authority to act in the national interest of the country uh, if he feels it necessary. So he, he we haven't seen the exact language yet on, um, on what this executive order will be. But uh, as far as sources are telling BuzzFeed News, it will uh, be able to limit the kinds of people who can apply for asylum at the southern border. Wow. Do we know how many people this is affecting or will affect? Uh, we don't know, but obviously we do know there is a quite large caravan moving through Mexico to to the border, which the president obviously has paid a lot of attention to. Uh, you know, his his advisor, Stephen Miller, who, who has a strong uh, anti- uh, anti-immigration feelings, right? Like this is this is something he has been working towards for a long time. So, so it is uh, it has captivated his attention. He wants to show that he is doing something about it, um, and and that's where this is all coming from now. But I, I would say that in terms of playing to his base, yes, obviously it plays to his base, but it is something that uh, Stephen Miller has worked for 
for a long time. And has strong, as you put it, feelings about. Um, I gotta ask, is this likely to be challenged? Sure does. Challenged in court? Like we saw that with the Muslim ban, will this also be challenged in courts? Federal judges across the country are cracking their knuckles, warming up, doing stretches, uh, getting ready. I mean, I I think that as soon as this lands, uh, you're, you're gonna see a very, very swift and quick challenge in court. And it was the same thing with the travel ban. I mean, this immediately uh, went to the court. So uh, we'll have to see how it is written, you know, what uh, what the precedent they are relying on to, to do this is uh, in terms of, you know, how a court challenge would play out. Uh, that's really TBD. But, um, but yes, this will be challenged in court very quickly. All right, and are we seeing that this is a midterm play by chance? I mean, I, I, I think that it doesn't doesn't hurt Trump to to play this to his base. I mean, this is part of why he got elected. This appeals to his voters. This sort of hard uh, anti-immigration stance that he's taken. But as I said earlier, uh, this is this is the this is part of the goal, right? Like this is what they have been really working towards. It is just a matter of the the timing now. We're basically a week uh, ahead of the midterms. It is is a play, but it's also not a play. Uh, It it is both of those things. Interesting. Well, Michael Avenatti found himself in the news quite a bit yesterday, but maybe not for reasons he wanted. Let's start with this tweet from Graham Vice. So um, Michael Avenatti tells Molly Ball and Alana Abramson that the 2020 Democratic nominee better be a white male. Uh, when you have a white male making the arguments, they carry more weight, he says, adding that he wishes they didn't. Uh, add, adding that at the end. Oh, I, I wish it didn't. Uh, I wish it didn't. What? La- that, oh, too much. I too wish much. it didn't. He's Av- just speaking the truth, right? Yeah. <laughs> I, I, wish it, I wish it wasn't that way. Oh. Uh, uh, Avenatti also responded in one of many tweets Quote, let me be clear, I've consistently called on white males like me to step up, take responsibility, and be a part of stopping the sexism and bigotry that the other white males engage in. It is especially important for them to call out other white males. I make this point in my speeches. Uh, yeah, good for you, man. Kate, Avenatti's presidential... I mean, I guess Michael Avenatti's going to come save us all, right? (laughs) He is. He is a a white man to save us from all the other white men. Uh, Avenatti's presidential hopes seem to be going not that well. Could this end his political ambitions? I mean... Is the precedent set for kind of a sexist, racist person to win the presidency? Maybe. I, I don't know. I mean, it certainly, uh, it, it certainly hasn't, uh, hasn't hurt our, our current president. His, it, the base of supporters, I mean, there are people that really like Michael Avenatti. There are people that uh, think he's kind of a rock star. I mean, there was a story I read recently where he went to Iowa and he was received uh, very well by people there. National Democrats hate this guy. So in terms of gaining support from a party apparatus or uh, getting support from other se- you know, senators or congresspeople, I'm not sure we're gonna see a lot of that, but you have to remember that uh, the National Republican Party really, really hated Trump for a long time until he was the nominee. Damn, so, that was a yeah, lot of knowledge. That was a lot. Damn, Kate. Thank you. All right, well, here's another tweet from CNN's Manu Raju. 
Senate Judiciary Chairman Chuck Grassley refers Michael Avenatti and Julie Swetnick to the DOJ for a possible criminal probe over allegations of false statements to Congress regarding Brett Kavanaugh. Now, Kate, does this come as a surprise? Uh, it doesn't come as a total surprise. I mean, Chuck Grassley uh, really, uh, you know, he doesn't, he, it, it, it offends his soul uh, when, uh, when, when this kind of stuff happens. I mean, I, I was not shocked to see that this would happen. He was really upset by the Avenatti-Switnik uh, allegations, as were, frankly, a lot of Democrats. Like, you didn't see a lot of pushback from the Democratic Party that this was, like, an inappropriate move. And so now what happens, the DOJ is going to treat this like a normal tip that comes into them, and they can investigate it or they can not investigate it. Uh, but given Michael Avenatti's stance towards the administration, I would not be surprised to see the DOJ take this one up. Okay, and what would they investigate exactly? Yeah, so they would investigate, uh, they would try and see if uh, Avenatti lied, if he uh, inappropriately uh, tried to sway Ms. Swetnick or any other of the witnesses, if he made false statements to Congress. We won't actually know what they are investigating because typically we don't know what the DOJ is doing until there is an actual indictment and charging. So it'll be in a black box for a while uh, until they come forward and, and feel like sharing something with us. Wow. So how has Avenatti himself responded to this referral? I mean, he's he's trying to be a tough guy and saying, you know, whoa, I got you, Chuck Grassley, because now we're going to, you know, now we're opening up a new investigation into Brett Kavanaugh. Not really. I mean, as I said, it is up to the DOJ to investigate what they want to investigate. So if they want to just investigate Michael Avenatti, that is what they will do. It is not like a court of law where suddenly Brett Kavanaugh is open up to a lot of discovery. This is what, uh, this is, this is, the, the DOJ will do this in private until there are, until there's potentially a charge. All right, well that's something we'll definitely keep an eye on. Kate, thank you so much for joining us this morning. Thank you for having me. And up next, you're gonna get to see my conversation with Ricky Lake. Ricky! Yeah. <laughs> 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 This is The Sit Down, and I'm here with Ricky Lake, the iconic daytime diva and executive producer of Weed the People, an upcoming documentary about treating children's cancer with medical marijuana. Good morning, Ricky. Good morning. I like the high energy. As soon as the red light goes on, man. I'm up. Yeah. I get amped. Yeah. I get amped. to that. Let me tell you, this documentary was so incredible. Thank you. And it follows five children as they deal with cancer using medical marijuana. How did you come across the story? I mean, it's a crazy long story, but my husband, my, my beloved who passed away last year, Christian Evans, he was back in 2012, long before anyone was talking about CBD and Charlotte's Web. My husband was researching cannabis for his own healing, you know, is his issues, his chronic pain and, and other things going on with him. And at the same time, we met this little girl and cut to, we were going on this journey to help this girl find integrative medicine for her, uh, uh, her, her disease that she had. 
and it led to this film, and it was you know six years in the making, and um, it's it's really important. It's really something that I think more people should know about. Mm -hmm. This plant is really misunderstood, and the the movie's really about this human rights issue yeah. at hand. And you've called it your husband's legacy. Mm -hmm. Why was this issue so important to him? Well, he struggled. You know, he struggled with mental illness. Um, he he took his life last year, and so he he was someone that just had learning issues and processing issues. He was brilliant. He was my favorite person I've ever known in my lifetime, um, but he really struggled, and so it was just this, this, he found cannabis to be something that could really help him with, and it really can help everyone. I mean, that's the thing, this plant that has sort of been stigmatized and 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 really, I mean, it's just been the smear campaign about this um, for many, many reasons that we discuss in the film, but really this is a plant, it's a weed that can grow in everyone's backyard, and I believe everyone should have access to this medicine because it, it doesn't cause the, the side effects that many of these drugs, like the opiates out there, I mean, it's really should be the go-to, I think. And I'm no doctor and I'm no expert, but I'm, I'm someone that really is curious about why things are the way they are, and I love making these films where it gets to really explore Okay, what is going on with this? You know, I made a movie about birth ten years ago called *The Business of Being Born*, and it was the same kind of thing. It's like there was a smear campaign against midwives and against out-of-hospital birth, and I didn't understand why. Mm -hmm. And so it's really doing these small projects that kind of raise these questions and hopefully come up with the answers. And really ask the viewer to maybe think outside the box and, and push past what one might consider traditional medicine. Right. So you just mentioned this is two films that are doing that, um, and, and I believe you have a third coming up, correct? Uh, about the, birth control. Yeah, the it's business of the pill. Yes. Yeah, the sweet. Why is that so important to you? I, you know, for someone who did a talk show for a long time, and I loved my talk. My talk show was great, and it was an amazing platform, and I, I'm so grateful to have had that, you know, that, that experience and built that kind of credibility. But it was seven-minute segments, and it was mostly about people, you know, having relationship issues, and, you know, we'd tie it up in a bow at the end, or they'd break up in the end. Whatever would happen, it was very, you know, it, it, was, it, was, it was succinct, and it was this, we really get to delve and go further. And for me, I love kind of you know, th thinking outside of the box and learning something in the process. And really, my the basis of all the films I do is about informed choice. Mm. So I'm not really telling people what to think or do what I did, but really, like, look, what people should know, the pros and cons of everything. And I think with cannabis, you know, it, it, there's so much misinformation. And, you know, people think it's kids getting stoned. No, they are not getting stoned. This is medicine. It is given to them through, you know, oils, through... Um, um, I forget that uh, uh, the, they extract the oils, mm -hmm. you know, and it's 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 like taking any other other drug. Yeah, yeah, yeah there's no side effect really. You and know? there's no side. What was one no of the harmful side effects? What were one of the thing like? What was the most surprising thing to you that you learned, especially when you think about the misinformation, the smearing that has happened uh, to cannabis over time? Well, I don't want to give the film away, but the the, the results are dramatic. I mean, these mm -hmm. children, are, you know, are, are really terminally ill, mm -hmm. um, and so a child when they've done the chemo and they've done the radiation and there's nothing more they can do, they send him home basically for palliative care and goes on cannabis oil for three months and then no sign of disease. I mean, literally, literally. Now, I don't want to say the cure word, <laughs> right. but literally, this boy had 20 tumors in his lungs, sent home to yeah. die, and is now cancer-free. And I do have to say, as watching the documentary, like it's just so emotional because these children are facing one of the biggest things anyone can face yeah. and to watch and them go parents, through that. And is, their parents having to make this judgment call. And for us as filmmakers, yeah. watching for five and a half years these families and not knowing what the, what the outcome is going to be. Mm -hmm. You know, you don't know. Mm -hmm. So it, it, it's really hopeful. I think it's a movie that, that offers a lot of hope mm -hmm. and raises a lot of questions and answers. And, I, and I'm really, really excited to present it. And, and like what you're saying, you're presenting the information, absolutely. not telling people what to do. Um, you did mention Ricky Lake. You did mention the talk <laughs> show there for yeah. a little bit. Is there anything 
anything, when you look back at those years, at the advice that you gave, you're 24 years old. Is there anything you would have done differently or is there any standout moment that you have? I mean, you know, I'm sure each show I could cringe at something I said or did, but but I'm, but I like, I like how I treated people. You know, I look back on it. I was very young and I was very green and I really didn't have much like, like of an opinion, like I, like I did, but I, I didn't really have a point of view. I didn't know who I was, you know, mm-hmm. think back who we are at 24 and who we are in our forties, you know, it's really, really different. But, um, I treated everyone with respect. We did so much for, for, for gay rights, for relationships of all kinds, mm-hmm. for, you know, um, multi like racial relations. Like it was just, it was a really positive show. Was, we had a lot of fun and there was a lot of drama, but <laughs> I look back on it. I'm, I'm really, I'm really, I'm really proud of like the work we were able to do at, while having a good time and being successful. And I think you should be. And I did, did, have you listened to the Lil Wayne's new album? Oh, I, yes, yes, yes. Because you are name dropped on the song "Can't Be Broken." <laughs> right. Your name yeah, dropped. Isn't it something like he's t- doing drugs while he's watching Ricky Lake or something? <laughs> I, I, <laughs> what does it mean to you though to have reached such a wide audience? Like I remember watching Ricky Lake. Like what is it to to, to reach such a wide I, audience? I love that I have managed to sort of reinvent myself through my career. So I started mm. with Hairspray when I was 18 years old. So mm-hmm. Hairspray, this iconic role, Tracy Turnblad, was the start of my career with John Waters, and then I managed to phase it into the talk show. And now I do more behind the scenes uh, producing of documentaries. So I, I love, I mean, I'm all about reinvention. And, um, I, you know, it gets stale if you do the same thing over and over again. So it's it's great. And I love that, like, my, my name is sort of iconic in this weird way. And um, and I never know when people come up to me, I never know what, what they love me from, whether it's the movies with John Waters, whether it's my talk show, or whether it's my my, my work with my docs. Oh, so, so you're always forward looking. But I do want to ask, Hairspray, come on. Like yeah. you just mentioned, iconic role. Oh, would, you ever, would you ever do a little full-time act? Would you ever get back in front of the camera? You know, I know no talk show, but what about a little acting? I mean, I, I never say never. I wrote a, a memoir called Never Say Never. So I, I don't know. I mean, if, if the right opportunity presented itself, if John Waters went back and made movies and he asked me to do a part, of course I would do it for him. But I don't think I'm that, I mean, I've done good acting work. I've been good in films. Yeah. I'm not a great, it doesn't come as naturally for me as being myself. Well, I'll know? say this. You are making such important documentaries. Thank so you. I really do appreciate it. That said, John Waters, man, if you want to get back into it, Get the dream team yeah. back together. That would be pretty great. I'm available for him. Ricky, thank you so much Such for joining pleasure. us. We really, thank really you. appreciate it. Weed the People hits theaters on October 26th. Stay tuned for more AM to DM in just a moment. Okay, so as hosts, we all here on the show have been super open about how we've had to adjust our sleep schedules to work on a morning show. I know Saeed struggles a little bit sometimes. Nick summed up my feelings pretty well when he said, me waking up, wow, I can't go to sleep tonight. I actually do dream sometimes of going to bed when I'm getting out of my bed. But what does science say about the best way to adjust our sleep schedules? Joining me now from the cut to help answer that tricky question is senior health writer and author of Cringeworthy, A Theory of Awkwardness, Melissa Dahl, and senior culture writer, Anna Silman. Guys, thank you so much for coming on. Thank you for having us. This is obviously a huge debate uh, (laughs) on the internet, for sure. Uh, So The Cut recently published a piece titled, there's two pieces. The first one said, it's astounding how many problems can be solved just by waking up early. The second one was, the best time to go to bed is 8.45. That seems really, really early. It does. Okay. Strong take. (laughs) So yeah, super strong take. So what has the reaction been to these pieces? The reaction has kind of been the same internally that it's been externally. People are really, you know, have really strong opinions about this thing. Um, and so Anna and I were talking about it on one of the days, and so that kind of resulted in, in her strong take. <laughs> yeah, so I mean, I'd read these pieces saying I should be getting up at 4 or 5 a.m., and then another piece saying I should 
go to bed at 8.45. And while I very much respect my colleagues you know, <laughs> as a night owl, I couldn't, I couldn't stand for that. I had, to, I had to let them know that even if I wanted to go to bed at 8.45 and wake up at 5, like that's not an option for me. Um, I just can't sleep whenever I want to sleep. And Melissa has been kind of helping me you know, feel less alone and realize that there's some science behind me. Yeah. yeah, for sure. Okay, so yeah, can you talk a little bit about your defense of being a night owl? Because I know I, so I'm definitely a morning person. My husband is a night person. And some, I've been wondering, like, is it unhealthy to be a night person? Or you, you're defending night people, right? Hmm, is it unhealthy? <laughs> <laughs> but no, right? Maybe. Um, I, I think, um, you know, Ariana Huffington, uh, yesterday she, she shared the Cuts articles and she said, you know, it doesn't matter when you sleep or when you wake as long as you're getting enough sleep. I think the problem is that we're expected to start work at eight or nine. So, you know, earlier in your case, so for those of us who can't fall asleep till two or three, we are just often operating on, on less sleep, and I think that's where you run into trouble. Yeah, and there are a lot of people like you. There's something like 40% of the population are like you, morning people, 30% are true night owls, like I think Anna is, and the rest of the, th uh, the, rest of the folks, 30%, um, fall somewhere in the middle, but most of them tend towards evening people, so there are more people on our side, sorry. No, I totally believe that. I feel like the majority of people I meet are definitely more into the evenings. So in the two cut articles, what were the arguments for like she said, waking up at 5 a.m. and going to bed at 8, 8.45. The arguments were um, the waking up astoundingly early was kind of um, an argument for getting a jump on your day. Kind of kind of the argument that um, if you're feeling anxious about something, maybe it's just better to just get up really early and kind of have time to ease into your day, which I get that. Um, and going to bed at 8.45 was about, um, well, if you're getting up at 5, you still gotta, gotta get some sleep. Um, but the thing is not, you know, those of us who are more evening types, I could go to bed at 8.45 and I would just lie there for several hours. So it just, it, I don't know, this week has just been a, a lesson in empathy for all, all <laughs> kinds of chronotypes. <laughs> yeah, it's so interesting because, like I said, I'm a morning person. I could, I could probably lay on this floor right now and go to sleep. Like, I can go to sleep whenever. Um, but I know, like, there's, that's something a lot of people struggle with. Yeah. So to tell them, oh, just go to bed early, that doesn't really solve your problem. Yeah. Well, get this. So I was I was saying this earlier to Anna, but um, so people who are night owls, sometimes it feels like my brain doesn't really click on until about 10, 11 o'clock. And that's actually true. Um, your brain, if you are a night owl, it kind of stays in a sleep status until like late morning, particularly the prefrontal cortex, um, which uh, it controls all these things like decision making and um, language and emotional regulation. So there's a reason that um, some of us are super dumb so in the morning. So there's sciences behind how yeah. dumb I am in yeah, the morning. Yeah, basically. That's good to know. <laughs> well, I feel like you just help so many people by spreading that knowledge. Now they have this like arm where they can go in and be like, it's not my fault. <laughs> doctors, go get a doctor's note. <laughs> well guys, thank you so much for joining me. And Twitter, we want to hear from you. What about your nightly routine or sleep habits do you wish you could change? Let us know using the hashtag AMCDF. Up next, Isaac is talking to singer and poet Mary Lambert. This is Poets Hotline. Today I'm with singer, songwriter, and poet Mary Lambert, who has a new collection of poetry, Shame is an Ocean I Swim Across. Good morning. Good morning. How are you? So good. It's so good to see you. It's good to I see like you the too. fall. I'm getting very fall vibes, and I love Thank it. Thank you. It's Thank like a, it's like skanky fall. <laughs> skanky fall. Just, I, it's like you have style. a way with words. It's like you have a way with words. Um, we want to start off by just asking you to read the first poem in your collection. What's the title? It's called How I Learned to Love. I'm gonna just let you take it okay, away. Okay. Okay. 
Um, when I was 15, I hated everything except for Weezer and maybe like two people and cereal. One time a boy grabbed me in the music room and kissed my neck in front of everybody. I did not want to be kissed. I did not know what to do. And so I laughed. I knew you were supposed to laugh after things like that. The world had taught me to dress up my trauma in short skirts and secret bathroom crying to protect the fragility of boys at all costs. When I was five, my father molested me. You become a strange human that way. You cannot whip yourself awake as a child. I should have been born a bird. When I turned six, I stopped talking. When I was 25 and my name was on the radio, I asked people to write poems and send them to me. Maybe because I was starved of honest humanity, half of the poems were about slit wrists. I do not want to know any more about this brand of humanity. All I know of love is hunger. When I met you, I planted my heart into the heavy earth. I was scared, but you smiled back. Thank God I was not born a bird. Clap it. Clap it. Come on. Come on. Thank you. Thank that you. That was absolutely fantastic. It's amazing. In the collection, you, you do, you write about trauma, you write about uh, mental health. Um, why is it important? What motivates you to tackle these issues? I, I like to talk about things that are uncomfortable because they're usually the most important things. And I think a lot of people um, harbor shame for stuff that um, they don't, that, like stuff that happened to them, stuff that was circumstantial. And I think um, that can be some of the most painful um, stuff to carry. And there's not really a reason for it. I think. Um, we, our brains do certain things for coping mechanisms, and I think sometimes they're helpful in those specific traumas. But I think um, just as a person, like I attempted suicide when I was 18, and now as a 29-year-old, I can't even fathom. Mm. Um, like my life is so precious, and I I'm, I'm feel much more careful, and like I see the value of it. So I understand what shame does to a brain and what shame does to a body. And so this collection was important for me to write because um, I can see all sides of it. And if I can encourage um, anyone else to be, um, to confront maybe their own inner turmoil and their processes, um, then hopefully I can encourage other people to live a more full, uninhibited life that is less riddled with shame. It's like my prerogative. Absolutely. A, a way of almost going back and kind of re-examining these moments that we've maybe locked away or, or, or buried deep. Right. Um, you, you also do the same in your music. Do you approach writing, say, lyrics to writing poetry differently as an artist? Yeah, they're different beasts for me. I think I when I write music, it's much more of like this divine, insular, like, moment that I feel like I have with God. And mm. it's, for me, it feels very spiritual. And I kind of even go, like, I feel like my eyes roll in the back of my head and I'm like the exorcist or something. <laughs> opposite of, I'm like, I'm like an angel exorcist, actually. <laughs> the opposite of the exorcist, just to be clear. <laughs> and, um, and when I'm writing poetry, I feel like I'm a little, I'm a bit more technical. And I think about structure and form and craft. And um, I think, uh, and I'm also thinking about messaging and what I want to say that's very clear. So actually writing this was terrifying because I'm so used to doing spoken word mm. and, 
and really controlling how people hear me. And so putting it on a page, I was like, but they're not going to know what my voice is. And so that's terrifying. They're not going to hear where my inflections yeah, are. Yeah, exactly. And I can't control how they emotionally feel. And so I'm, I'm, I'm contending with it. And so I, I came to peace with it when I recorded the audiobook. Okay. <laughs> I got my little bit of control. You're like, I can have that. But no, it's also an important part, kind of, right? Letting your artwork go to be interpreted out in the world. Right. Um, I want to ask, you're, you're an openly queer artist. It's mm -hmm. very important to you. How do you deal with just 2018, with the messaging out of the White House? Yeah. I think more than ever, there's an urgency for uh, like marginalized voices to share their stories. And I feel like people that have larger platforms, it's like a civic duty to share and uplift each other mm -hmm. and make sure that um, what we're getting, uh, what, what our minds are focusing on, what our media is focusing on, and what we choose to fill our ears and our eyes and our brains with um, are messages that um, uh, continue to tell a complete story mm. because I feel like we often get a very canned narrative from um, from sort of this public eye mm -hmm. thing. Mm -hmm. And I just, I wish that um, more voices were on a platform that had um, stories to tell. And I think when we give people opportunities to do so, it's it's a win. Like mm -hmm. we we win because it it's it gives a full complete idea of experiences, and it makes life and um, the world so rich and and vibrant. And I feel like we're missing that. I feel like we're getting um, so much rhetoric of really scary, dystopian, like you know, Orwellian. Fear, and I'm, and I'm, I'm personally scared, and it's, I'm, I, I'm contending with like wanting to watch the news to be connected, and also being like I have to also protect myself from this kind of top-down exactly. Narrative. And I think you're absolutely right. The way we fight back against that is more people telling their stories. Right. What advice would you give to somebody who's trying to find their voice, who's whether it is as a poet or as a singer-songwriter? Like, what, what advice would you give to somebody who wants to figure out how to tell their own story? Um, I think f at least what worked for me is to just um, really retain authenticity whatever, in whatever um, road you choose to express. But there's so many different ways to express yourself. It's, mm. Creatives aren't the only people that you know, have outlets. There's also like, um, my friend does this thing of digital storytelling. And there's, um, I don't know, there's just, there's so many different, there's painting and then there's like, I don't know, leading a, a group thing or community building. Hiking. Yeah, what, yeah, exactly. <laughs> Petting dogs. <laughs> Whatever way you need to live your fullest, most complete life is like what I fully believe in and, and, re and remaining authentic and vulnerable so that we have the ability to connect with each other is what's gonna save the world. I absolutely love that. I feel inspired by that. One last question, because it spoke to me so deeply in this collection. Um, body positivity, yeah. there's so much in here. Uh, what's, what's a way to help with that messaging? What's a way to, to get more body positivity out there in, in the world? Yeah, I mean, I, it's one of my favorite things to talk about because I feel like so often, like kind of figures and memes and things go around and it's just like, 
love yourself today and love your body. I was like, if that were possible, I would have done that 10 years ago. What are you doing? Like, what are you, do what are you doing? <laughs> Give me a concrete tool. So I have, I'm, I'm, my next book, I'm working on a guidebook of like how to love your body. So I will, like, there's like concrete tools that I've learned that I've, like, that, I mean, if you would have told me that I would be on like stages wearing crop tops, I would have punched you in the face. And now I'm, you know, I'm like, I'm like 250 pounds and like wearing a crop top and dancing and jiggling, and I love it. And but I, that journey wasn't overnight. And you don't go from complete self-loathing and hating your body to embracing it and dancing in front of everybody with your jiggles out. Like that just doesn't happen. So there what, are steps. So what is that process like? And I think. Um, there were two uh, really important processes for me, and the first one was I started uh, just reading really easily digestible books on neuroscience, okay. and I wanted to study my own brain. So I wanted to analyze my own thought processes and what was what wires were firing that made me hate myself? What actual voices were telling me these awful things? Was it me? Was it some, you know? parent, was it some abuser that I could at least analyze and figure out where these things were coming from, then I can start the process of um, changing those train tracks mm -hmm. and hopefully get on a better path of better self-talk and things like that. And better synapses. Yeah. All right. Well, listen, when's that book come out? I don't know. All right, well, I'm going to look for it when it does. In the meantime, thank you so much for coming on the show this morning. Shame is an Ocean I Swim Across is available now. It's a wonderful collection of poetry. Please do pick it up. Up next, Stephanie is talking to Huda Katan about creating a beauty empire. We'll be right back. That was awesome. Thank you. Who lead. I am so excited and honored today to be joined by Huda Katan, beauty influencer, the star of Huda Boss on <laughs> Facebook Watch. And of course, you guys all know her as the founder of Huda Beauty, a company that is worth, I just want to say this, over $1 billion. Thank you. Thank you so much. Your Thank story you. is so incredible. Thank I you. really appreciate you coming on to share it with us. So obviously we all know, but just to reiterate, you got your start as a beauty blogger That's and right. vlogger. Yes. How did you make that jump? I feel like that's something that so many people want to do into yeah. becoming this amazing businesswoman. I think it's a really interesting time right now because a lot of people, you know, are thinking about how they can start their own brand. I think back in the day it was like, you know, you basically want to work with companies and they pay you a certain amount and then all of a sudden, you know, you get work that way. And now it's like, well, hey, wait a second. I have a following. I have some celebrity. I have an opinion. I actually want to create my own thing. And that's kind of what's, you know, happening right now. Um, for us, however, that did that was not on purpose. <laughs> it was um, kind of by accident. Um, you know, for better or for worse, we were just honestly making lashes out of like fun and just having fun with it. We literally, I took a, a loan from my sister for $6,000 and I was like, hey, hopefully this works, but if it doesn't, I'm gonna pay you back $6,000 every time I wear a lash. <laughs> and I have a really nice sister and she somehow agreed to that. Um, so it was just like, we were just, it was just a test. What was the thing that sparked you to create those first set of false lashes? There was really a need. To be honest, you know, people were messaging me. They were messaging my sisters. They were, you know, emailing us like, "Oh my God, what are you guys wearing? What are you guys doing?" Um, and that's kind of how it happened. And then, kind of, you know, similarly, when we got into makeup, you know, it was a risk because makeup is obviously such a huge investment, especially when you are, you know, somebody who's, you know, really trying your best to stay afloat, you know. Um, 
because this was the time where you know we bloggers were not really people that you know brands spent money on at that time. Um, now it's really popular, but at that time it wasn't. So it was really challenging to try to find a way to, to fund it. And we took a risk and, uh, and luckily it paid forward. Yeah, we've talked to so many female entrepreneurs and one of the things that they always talk about is it's so hard to get men who control so much of the business world to take our products that would actually benefit women seriously. Did you face any of that at all? Oh You're nodding God. your head, so yeah. I think you did. <laughs> I actually, um, you know, that that was a huge problem for me because, um, you know, also being in the Middle East too, I think one of the problems was that people just like looked at us like, you know, it was just a hobby and we didn't know what we were doing and that they knew better. And um, it was challenging because, you know, ultimately we, forget all the business stuff, forget all of those things, you know. You know how you feel as a person, as a woman who's using these beauty products, you know how you feel about that. And for better or for worse, I mean, you know, can you sell products based on emotion? Absolutely, that's what marketing does. And maybe we weren't doing what was traditional, but we were definitely doing what we felt was real and what was right. And it was definitely challenging because, you know, we got a lot of pushback from, you know, men in suits, <laughs> you know, telling us how to do things. And um, it, was, it was challenging. It was, you know, it was, it was probably the hardest thing that we went through. How did you keep pressing on? What did you tell yourself when you were getting all of these men telling you, you know, I think also from the beauty industry, I feel like people are like, oh, that's silly. That's like kind of like women's stuff, whatever. Yeah. How do you keep pushing on and have that fortitude to be like, no, this is a good idea and this is gonna work? I think one thing I've always done and I still do it to date, um, I've never had a plan B. And I think that's really important. I think, you know, you're just going to have to make it happen. I actually, my husband bought me this really amazing thing. It's actually Longshore bag and it says plan A. It's a birth control thing. <laughs> it's like, it's hilarious. But on the back of it has plan A and I literally put it in my, on my shelf in front of where I, where I sit. So I see it all the time it says plan A and I always think like, you know, you never have a plan B. You make plan A work no matter how it happens. You don't think about it. And you know, sometimes I just, I don't think about it. I'm like, this is just, I have to make it happen. So, you know, I don't doubt myself. I try not to. I feel like you using a thing that was originally meant for birth control <laughs> as a motivation to push forward Absolutely. as a female in the business space is one of the best things I have ever I heard. It. And I love her. Yeah. She's amazing. That is totally amazing. Okay, so one of the trends in beauty that I wanted to get your take on is this uh, I feel like obviously Fenty came out yes. and she was one of the first, Rihanna was one of the first people to offer, you know, a bunch of shades of foundation. Yeah. And it's like the beauty industry kind of looked at itself and was like, oh, we should be doing this too, even though obviously they should have been doing it right. long, long ago. Right. And now they're really pushing inclusivity and having more shades. And that's something you yeah. guys have been doing forever too. And I'm just curious, what is it like to see that shift, especially as a woman of color yourself? I think, you know, I think it's just so necessary. I think part of the problem, part of the reason that we got really passionate when we were creating so many tones is um, while we were creating it, it was almost like you know people who have different skin tones are almost like not a part of the conversation. So it's almost like, oh, this is beauty, but you're not a part of it. You know, and so it was actually a really emotional thing for us to, you know, when we were developing colors. And I think ultimately, you know, it's a conversation that needs to happen. Yes, there were like some political movements that made it really powerful, made it very strong. But um, I just think it's really necessary. I do think to some extent, it's really hard to offer a shade for every single person because no matter how light or dark you are, there are also so many tones. So I think um, it's, it's gonna be a work in progress. You know, it's never gonna stop. Um, I think the conversation is just gonna continue forever and ever, and I hope it does. It's really important. Well, I know you inspire so many women and girls who watch your channel. If there's Thank one you. thing you wanted to say to them about entrepreneurship and having your own business, what's like one big lesson you've learned? You know, I think um, 
It, it, this may sound really funny, but one of the things that I really struggled with, um, and I said this just a minute ago, like I try not to doubt myself, but I really struggled with that in the beginning because I constantly doubted myself. And I think it really does pay tremendous value to, to really take a risk on yourself and to believe in yourself. Um, even when everybody around you, even sometimes some very close people to you don't believe in you. You know, I think that intuition is something that is so powerful when you have it, believe it. That's just, I mean, we run our company with intuition as crazy as it sounds. What's the best part of having your own business for you? I think um, this might sound weird, but being a mom, um, you know, I, I guess like I get to show my daughter what a woman is capable of doing. And, um, you know, she also teaches me a lot about also how to run my company, believe it or not, because I feel to some extent, you know, to my team too, I almost like want to like and somehow like mother them as well, you know, and also show them what they're capable of and, you know, give them wings as well. So um, I think being a mom is, you know, I, I think a lot of times as a woman, you're not encouraged to be a mother when you're working. And I think ultimately you can actually be a mom and you can actually, it can help you in your business. Yeah, I mean, you had your daughter, yeah. you know, as you were starting your business or- yeah, she's here. Yeah, I know she's right <laughs> over there. <laughs> yeah, it's, that's so cool that you brought her. I love that. Well, thank, thank you. you so much. Who I can talk you. to you all day, but we gotta end <laughs> it here. You. Isaac and Chantal are back next with your tweets. an update on the reports of those packages. Director of Public Affairs at the Department of Justice, Sarah Esquire Flores tweeted, we can confirm one person is in custody. We will hold a press conference at the Department of Justice at 2.30 p.m. Eastern Standard Time. All right, and be sure to follow BuzzFeed News on Twitter for more updates like we've been saying all day. This is an ongoing story. But one person in custody. Yes, one person in custody. It's a, yes. it's a start. It's developing. I, and again, we don't know much. We don't know much. Florida man. Staying tuned. Yeah. Ooh, Just out there. Oh, All right. For sure. Well, we asked you to choose between a classy read and staying unbothered. Joe Lee says, I choose to deliver an unbothered read. Just casual shade. All right. Just a little casual just shade. Casual. Being classy with it. I agree just, with you. Just, and, that, and that kind of, maybe yeah. that is. Because Samuel Hall wasn't like totally, exactly. but there was then, that like. Because then people, the tone shifts on you and people look at you as the wrongdoer instead of the person who started it. <laughs> I'm like, I don't want that kind of. There's all yeah. these, exactly. all layers. these levels, layers. all these layers. All right, one of our own producers, Rebecca, says, always got to hit them with a classy read because terrible people need to know when they are terrible. Mm -hmm. Okay, that is absolutely correct. You just, it's 2018. It's so true, yeah. Just let people know. Oh, it's so real. Let people know. And <laughs> so real. And we ask you what your sleep schedule is, and Princess Slaya says, I definitely wish I could have more consistent nightly routine. I'm definitely a night owl, but when I fall asleep and wake up, always varies. I want consistency. I want consistency. In my life, I need it. <laughs> in life in general, not just sleep in life. Are, yeah, well, no, are you, are you a morning person? Are you an evening person? You know person? what, I'm neither. I just like to sleep. I just <laughs> like to just be one with my bed. I don't like to wake up. I just want to just sleep. Just, just go to bed. You're just, you're yeah. like, I'm not a morning, morning person. person. I'm not person. a night person. I just want to go to bed. Best. When I wake up in the morning, I said, ah, oh, this again. This again. <laughs> That's what I want, a t-shirt with your face. This, <laughs> this again. again. All right, well, listen, thank you so much to our guests. It was a great show today. Ryan Mack, Parker Malloy, Kate Nocera, Ricky Lake, Anna Silman, Melissa Dahl, Mary Lambert. Man, she was just, just absolutely amazing. fantastic. amazing. I want to be best friends with her. And Huda Katan, who absolutely brought the knowledge to oh, this. Oh, so was good. Great. Such a great show today. And yeah. next week, we have a full week. 
Chase Lehman, Omari Hardwick, the cast of Outlander. Yeah, we're so ready for it. And Alan Leach from Bohemian Rhapsody. It's Saeed and Isaac, we will be we'll be back hosting on Monday. And I can't wait till the next time I get to host yes, with you. Yes, I love it. You're Rock amazing. We love it. Enjoy your Friday, guys. Have fun. Oh, Ricky.